We acknowledge the Gadigal people, who are the traditional owners on the country on which we record, and honour their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. And then I got an email from my wife, and in it it said, hey, you know, here's a picture of George and my daughter. And I just clicked on it and it said, boo, gotcha. You can imagine how relatively easily I could have been scammed at the time. I'm Katie Finlayson. Welcome to season two of Hackable Me, the podcast that dives into the murky world of cybercrime. In this season, we're going to be looking at the costs of cybercrime, from how much it costs criminals to launch an attack, to how much it costs businesses and individuals who find themselves the victim of a cyber attack. Australians lost a record $323.7 million to all types of scams in 2021, according to the latest figures from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's Scam Watch. In 2020, that figure was 175.6 million. That's an 84% increase. But in our first episode for season two, we're going to look at it from the cyber criminals' point of view. What does it cost them to launch an attack? Cybercrime is a growing business. For a long time, attacks mostly focused on individuals. And while those still occur daily, Many criminals are setting their sights on higher hanging fruit. The targeting of large, impactful uh, infrastructure is new. And attackers have basically worked out that if they attack something really large and um, something's going to have, have a broad impact, then the size of the ransom that they're able to be able to get from the victims is much higher. Adrian Kovich is the Senior Director of Technical Sales at Proofpoint for Asia Pacific and Japan. And what that basically means is I work closely with our customers and industry on cybersecurity issues um, to make sure that we're, uh, we're able to help as part of that effort, making sure that our, our people are protected. A recent example of the sort of larger attack Adrian is talking about is the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that happened last year in the United States. If a large portions of a particular um, company's distribution uh, system for, for gas are taken offline, that's worth a lot of money. And if attackers can um, restrict access to those systems, or in this case, restrict access to the distribution of, of, uh, of gas, then uh, they can demand higher ransoms. In the end, Colonial Pipeline paid the requested ransom of $4.4 US million within several hours after the attack. In that instance, the FBI did manage to track down some of the money, as well as identifying who the attackers were, a group calling themselves Darkside and where it had come from. So, what leads a person down the road of cybercrime? It's dangerous, it's illegal, the risks are surely high, and there's the fact that you're taking advantage of others to make that money. There are a broad range of motivations. Those motivations may be money, and I guess it typically is, you know, why do people rob banks? Because that's where the money is. That motivation can manifest itself in in various ways. Uh, We may have highly skilled, underpaid people who are working on their own, or again, fairly lucrative, large organisations who are able to pay well for people as part of a chain to be able to, you know, to use their skills. And it's hard for me to put my mind in the, in the mind of a criminal from that perspective, um, except to say that there's a profit motive. And like you say, you know, if you're robbing someone who you may never see, 
or who might be in a very different socioeconomic position than you, particularly if you're coming from a, perhaps a, um, a position of not very much material wealth, um, then those sort of moral guardrails that would normally stop people from being criminals won't be there. And that's unfortunate. You know, it's it's very tempting in a place where perhaps it's difficult to earn significant amounts of money or to get a, a good job in the legal world, so to speak. And there are plenty of such countries that don't have the same opportunities you may have in Australia or in Singapore or the United States, uh, you know, to, to go ahead and do this kind of thing. Andrew Milroy is the founder of Vector8, a digital risk advisory firm based in Singapore. And what we do is we advise our clients on the digital risks that they face, and then we advise them on what they need to do about it. There's also the case of some people being unaware of the fact they're actually working for a cybercrime organisation. There was a case of, I think on LinkedIn, a recent one of, of somebody being offered a job again to provide data to some organization in China in this case. And it was basically espionage going on. But as far as the colluder was concerned, it was a perfectly legitimate job that in this case he was involved in. In many cases, organizations are run very much like any office place. Somebody would say, look, we need a customer services professional and you'd go along and, and you'd, you'd provide that customer service. Or somebody would say, we need a, a penetration tester. There'd be all kinds of legitimate looking roles there. We need a systems analyst, right? There'd be plenty of uh, a UX designer. You'd often have no, no reason to think that you're working for an organization that's committing cybercrime. The thing that actually pulls on my heartstrings the most personally is when I see some of the phone scams that exist or even some of the um, cyber extortion scams that exist that prey on older members of the community who don't have that wherewithal. A lot of attackers see them as, you know, as easy victims um, and that's, that's sad. Okay, so for those people out there who have knowingly chosen to go down the path of cybercrime, what sort of costs will they face to get the right tools? The thing is, it depends on what sort of an attack you want to pull off and how sophisticated you want your tools to be. Take a recent smishing attack in Singapore. In case you don't know, a smishing attack, also known as SMS phishing, is carried out over mobile text messaging. You know, several hundred uh, Singaporeans fell for an SMS that came to them telling them that they needed to click on a link in that SMS and change their account settings. And in doing so, they were directed to a fake bank site and they obviously put their credentials into that. And then the attacker then uh, basically put those credentials into a real site. The OTP was sent and then the OTP was requested from the victim and the victim gave that OTP and bingo, the attacker's inside the account and is able to obviously get up to mischief when, when there. According to a recent report from Proofpoint, globally smishing has increased 20% over the past year with 74% of organisations facing smishing attacks. The Singapore attack was, in Andrew's words, very unsophisticated. In fact, you or I could do that relatively easily. It's likely they paid for a phishing kit, and these kits can be purchased in, on the dark web for a relatively small amount of money. You're talking hundreds or maybe thousands at the most in terms of, of dollars for access to this, these kinds of facilities. And what this will provide you with is a, a realistic looking fake 
website, right? So you can realistically spoof the website of the bank that you're attempting to defraud and the customers that you're attempting to defraud, right? So it's relatively straightforward to, to put up this fake site. What about ransomware kits? Are they as affordable? Now, some of the ransomware attacks that we see where people purchase ransomware as a service kits, again, they can start off as you know paying $30, $40 a month like you would software as a service, up to much, much more expensive um, kits that are more sophisticated and have higher success rates. Once you buy these kits, they work very similarly to products you might purchase legally. You can even get tech support and customer service. It's actually quite extraordinary uh, how sophisticated some of these offerings are. They're just like the legal world, right? And uh, the kinds of things that you can buy various so ransomware as a service kits obviously are incredibly popular at the moment. Distributed denial of service kits are also very popular, where you can pretty much knock out you know some system for ten minutes to a day, depending on the on the amount that you spend on a particular kit. Often that might be used in conjunction with a ransomware as a service kit. There are various bits of malware that you can buy that can spy uh, on uh, or in organizations, networks and, and, and systems. And with that, you can exfiltrate uh, bits of information that can help you distribute your emails widely and to your right target audiences or your SMSs widely to your right target audiences and direct them to a spoof website. Uh, so these kinds of, of kits can be bought in the hundreds of dollars um, or even, even the, ten, the tens of dollars. There are other ways, though, to get access into big businesses' systems that don't require any software. A senior person could put pressure on a junior person to to actually give information uh, to somebody making out that there's no drama associated with it, it's perfectly legitimate, it's perfectly acceptable when it's not. And maybe that senior person is the person that's uh, receiving uh, the bribe. Or you could have an employee of a company targeted by an outside cyber criminal. A year or two ago was... A Tesla employee uh, basically raised a red flag saying, look, I was approached and offered a million dollars to basically start a a ransomware attack in Tesla. Now, he popped up and announced that he was offered a million dollars, which he obviously didn't take. But the question you have to ask yourself is how many employees would be willing to take a million dollars if they were approached by a third party to do this? I think for a lot of people, if you're if you're offered a life changing sum of money for what seems like a a relatively you know innocent low impact uh, activity, you'd be, you'd be very tempted. What Andrew is talking about is an example of an insider threat. Insider threats are a major risk for organisations of all sizes, and it's getting more expensive to ignore them. It costs more now than ever before to remediate an insider incident. Not only are they becoming costlier, but they're also occurring more regularly. According to Poneman's 2022 Cost of Insider Threats report, it's costing organisations $15.4 million, up 34% from 2020, and they've increased in frequency by 44% in the same time period. Insider threats can even go as far as appearing as a legitimate organisation, like the police, asking for assistance. There was a famous one in Singapore where an employee was passing data to what she thought was the Shanghai police. So she was led to believe that a legitimate law enforcement organisation required uh, certain 
amounts of information. So you get the, the accidental collusion and then you get the intentional collusion where people have been duped into giving information. Uh, the intentional collusion uh, is something that's altogether more worrying where people are being offered significant amounts of money to, to help gangs achieve their goals or nation states. We've talked about the financial cost, but what about the cost of getting caught and ending up in jail? How likely is that to happen to these cyber criminals? Uh, shockingly unlikely, and that's why we need to build our defence. We need to understand the kind of attacks that you are likely to face and make sure that your organisation is able to handle those attacks. Adrian says from all his years of working in the field of cybersecurity, the likelihood of someone being caught remains relatively low. But the fact that these attacks continue to occur means that, you know, even if particular groups are taken down, and it's very satisfying when they are, it becomes a spot where another group may want to want to um, pop up and, uh, and take their place. And that sort of cat and mouse part and that unfortunate innovation that exists within the cyber criminal community is... Um, is really, I guess, just a function of the fact that there continues to be available victims, there continues to be available money for these criminals to steal. So a lot of our motivation is actually more towards making it difficult for attackers and therefore not really profitable and not really lucrative for attackers to attack us rather than just concentrating on going after these criminals. It's only getting easier for attackers. There's been a number of trends which have made external access and therefore you know, successful cybercrime easier. Right? If we look back to, I guess, the, you know, the olden days, if you like, it was very difficult to hack a computer that wasn't connected to the internet. If we look at sort of that extreme all the way through to where we are now, where there's a lot of remote access, people are working from home, they're collaborating with other you know, supply chain organizations, you know, they're using a lot more cloud provided by a cloud provider, or they might actually also be using software as a service. And we see examples of that all over the place where you know, we now have cloud drives and uh, we collaborate on cloud services and as you know, they're designed from the ground up to be collaborative. And unfortunately, what that means is that there's uh, going to be a lower barrier to entry for cyber criminals if things like authentication and, um, and gateway controls aren't strong enough. So with that move to, to, to broader access to more collaboration, we've got to make sure that we keep the security up to date and capable of making sure that only the people who should have access have access and they can only do the things that they should be able to do. And cyber criminals are taking advantage of, of gaps in that posture. And the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't helped. Companies have rushed really to keep things going in the face uh, of this crisis. Often cybersecurity has been a secondary concern. So the focus has really been to making sure the business can keep growing, keep operating, making sure it can handle this disruption, moving to the cloud for, for much, much greater agility and flexibility. What we've repeatedly seen is oversights, such as, for example, moving to the cloud and, and not configuring that cloud resource in a way that aligns with cybersecurity policies, so creating vulnerabilities and offering access to, to folks that shouldn't necessarily have access to certain resources. Andrew says the chances of not ever being attacked are too slim to plan for that scenario. Instead, he says we need to adjust to a plan of what to do when we find ourselves under attack. He calls it the zero trust approach. Which means that 
if a breach does occur based on somebody getting all this information about you and your organization, make it really difficult for them to do a lot of damage once they're inside. So every time they need to access a new resource, make them re-authenticate, re-authorize each time. So never trust, always verify. So just make it very difficult, if not impossible, for somebody to move laterally. Work on your privileged access management. Make sure that your, you know, your senior people, your IT administrators, don't have a free reign just to move around unfettered within your systems. And as a consumer, as a customer, it really means, look, just don't trust anything. So if you receive an SMS, double check it, double check it to make sure it doesn't look suspicious and to make sure it's in line with what you'd expect from the organization. If you see a link, you can put your cursor over it and you can check the website, right? So you can check that it's HTTPS, a secure website, and you can check that it's actually you know, from the organization, because often what the the attackers will do is they'll change it very slightly. You know, they might have, uh, a, you know, a letter out of place somewhere to spoof it. So just check that that is the legitimate one. And if there's a sense of urgency, if it's demanding you for, your, for any kind of personal data from you, double check. You know, I mean, I, I've had situations like this where I've had financial services organizations come to me by email and asked me actually for my wife's data for a complimentary credit card and it looked fishy to me and I actually rang them up and I said, look guys, is this legitimate? It actually was in that case. But I think if you get you know emails asking for personal information urgently or SMSs asking for personal information urgently, double check. Don't just automatically give it. Uh, look for some kind of additional verification as a customer is the recommendation uh, that I would that I would give because you are going to increasingly be and you already are subject to relentless phishing attacks via SMS and via via email social media as well so anything that wants something from you asked for any personal data at all double check In the next episode, we talk to a Chief Information Security Officer and former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about what happens when a company or a government falls under attack and what they can do to protect themselves. Someone can be absolutely the best, most honest, decent person in the world, but if they are careless, they can do a lot of damage. I'm Katie Finlayson, and this is Hackable Me. My thanks to my guests, Adrian Kovic and Andrew Milroy. Find the full series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hackable Me was produced by Just Global and Audiocraft. Music is from Epidemic Sound. Find out more about how you can protect yourself and your organization from cyber attacks. Visit proofpoint.com slash hackableme.